I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible, a copy of the Bible, or if you don't, there's one in the one of the seats in front of you there, and if not, the words will be on the screen. But today we are going to travel into John chapter nine. As a pastor, sometimes, and I've said this before, there's great danger in preaching the Gospels and in particular the words of Jesus because uh, it's the words of Christ. You know, this isn't rocket science. I don't need to make Jesus say something that he's not saying. So some of the stories that Christ, that we are familiar with, if you've been in the church for a while, if you've been around the church and have been reading the Bible for any period of time that are going to seem super familiar to you, um, that's not a bad thing. But it's good sometimes to take a step back and as we go to the Word and we evaluate some of these things, it's good to have a, uh, the truths of, of Christ, the simple truths of Christ spoken over us again. Just to be reminded as believers uh, who we are and to be reminded as humans sometimes simply as creations of God who we are as well in Him. So today is one of the most famous accounts of, of Jesus. And what He does today is He restores a man's sight. Now this isn't anything you know unique this is something that Jesus had done plenty of times in the scriptures and he had um, restored sight he had healed the lame and on and on and on miracles were just who he was you can't encounter the living God and not experience his power but while the account is about yes receiving physical vision this account is slightly different than some of the other miraculous accounts because what we get is the the after you know, you get to you get to see the man receive his sight, but what makes this one telling is what happens not just with him receiving his sight, but what happens after. Uh, because a lot of times Jesus would would perform a miracle, he would heal somebody, and and we would get a brief you know sort of snippet into that person's healing encounter with Christ. But with this guy, we see the the ramifications of what happened with him receiving his sight. So I'm going to break this story down into some chunks today um, because I think what you'll see here is it's not just about receiving physical sight, but it's about a much deeper vision that this man received and a much deeper vision that we all need to receive in our lives. So let's start out here in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The Word of the Lord says this, As he, being Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can do work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, meaning the blind man, he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? 
And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Alright, let's start here. We're going to talk about three different aspects of our vision today. And not the kind of vision that my wife is used to. She She's an RN. She spends her days doing surgery on people's eyeballs and finds this completely fascinating. Um, I find it completely boring. But, uh, you know, I'm a good husband, so when she tells the stories, I listen intently when she comes home uh, about all the... But I think what she likes the most is, she, and she said this, she likes the fact that people come in in the morning, they can't see, and a couple hours later they walk out and they can see. And it is miraculous that we live in a day and age where this kind of stuff is available. Obviously, you know, 2,000 some years ago, this was blindness was an epidemic. Um, the things that we take for granted now, which is the the simple removal of a cataract, or um, like I've had, the, the, many of you have had, the, the LASIK surgery where they shoot a laser into your eye and all of a sudden you can see clearly again and you're not squinting at everything and you can drive a car at night. These are all like ho-hum things for us nowadays. Um, but back then, I mean, vision was a legitimate thing and if somebody was even born blind, it was considered a, a much deeper, almost like a a sentence of, 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 of imprisonment for life if you couldn't see, which is the case of this man. But as we talk about our vision, there's a deeper vision that's going on here. Not just the physical vision that we all are, uh, most of us are blessed with, but there's a, a spiritual vision that Jesus is wrestling with in this man's life as well. So three points I want to draw out to you today as we talk about this story. And the first from the text that we just read is this. Our vision, in particular our spiritual vision, of Christ begins with Him and not us. Our vision of Christ begins with Him and not us. Let me explain that a little bit. Just like this man, we are all stuck in blindness. And you say, well, you know, I... I've been seeing fine since the day I was born. I don't have a problem focusing in on things. I don't even wear reading glasses yet. That, that's not the blindness that I'm talking about. We're all sinners, just like this man was. We're all sinners, and we're all stuck in a blindness that leaves us needing sight. Something's happened in our life uh, as a result of being born into blindness, spiritual blindness, we live in a world of spiritual blindness, and because we're born into that world, there are things that are going to happen from time to time that are going to be used of God as a catalyst to point us towards Christ. And only God can do this. Now let me explain this in the context of the man who was born blind. You notice the questions that the um, disciples first asked Jesus when they came across this man. They seemed a little insensitive, really. Uh, but the first question out of their mouth was, who, who sinned that this man was blind? Was it him or was it his parents? Now, think about the ridiculousness of that question. How could this man, if he was born blind, how could this man have sinned in order to be born blind? Well, actually, 
there were a, a substantial number of people in Jewish belief that believed that it was possible for children to sin in utero. They believed in that depth of depravity of humanity. So they're saying, was this a, a pre-born sin that resulted in this man being born blind, or probably more what they were getting at was, has this man's family done something that has caused God to curse the child or punish the child with sin? And Jesus' answer should be so reassuring to all of us. Jesus says, basically, no, this man was allowed to be born blind because I have a greater purpose for him. I want to, God, and only God can do this, I want to take the infirmity that's the result of the world that we live in, and we all in this room would agree, right? We live in a world of sickness and, um, uh, we live in a world of sickness and sin and depravity and brokenness and heartache. That's just the world we live in. You can't fix that. But what God does is, He allows these things for a greater purpose. God says, alright, this man, Jesus says, this man wasn't born blind because of something he did or because of something his parents did. This man was born blind because God was going to glorify himself through his illness. Because the truth is, sickness and death come to us all, and just um, and a just God, a righteous God, if we allow Him at times in our life, will intercede to use those things as He sees fit for His various reasons. I'm not expecting everybody in this room to get this point this morning. I believe this is a fairly spiritually discerned point. But for those of us who are believers in the room, I want you to rest in assurance of this. Not everything that happens in your life has to be a consequence of wickedness, evil, or has to result in complete destruction or decay in your life. God can take those things that He has allowed in your life that seem impossible, that seem beyond challenging, that seem so incredibly painful that you can't even imagine waking up the next day to face it again. God, I'm telling you, God can take those things. If you allow Him, He can take those things and do the miraculous and do the remarkable for His glory and His purposes. To model this, now this goes two ways. There are things that God allows um, to go on in our lives that He does not miraculously fix. And then there are some things in His sovereignty that God does miraculously fix, and both are his choice. But the outcome of both, I'm telling you, is good. It may not be good in your mind right now, but it's good. And to model this, let me give you an example out of the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul, from the moment that he was born again, was put on notice by God that he would need to spend his life suffering for his, meaning God's, purposes. Who among us, the day we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, would have just raised our hand to say, yes, sign me up for a lifetime of suffering 
That's the Christianity that I want. I mean, that doesn't fit the narrative of the American church. We want, we want the Christianity that means the most comfortable seats. We want the Christianity that means uh, nice and easy peasy. We want the Christianity that's not going to ask us to move out of our comfort zone. And yet, biblically speaking, I don't think the Apostle Paul, when you talk about biblical characters, is that far out of the norm. The majority of the people that God uses scripturally, he allows one traumatic situation and one difficulty and one period of brokenness after another to occur in their life. Why? So that they can be used as a catalyst to glorify Him. We don't want that in our life. We don't want brokenness. We don't want heartache. We don't want suffering. And I get that. I don't want it either. But the spiritual dimension of that is to always ask the question, okay, Lord, um, here we are. I stand in a, a pile of filth that is my life. Is this about you or is it about me? Because that's what his disciples were asking. Jesus, what is it about him? And Jesus is saying it's not about him, it's about me. When we stand in the filth, when we stand in the brokenness, we must ask the mature question to say, okay, is this about me or is this about him? Paul's life was a great laboratory for God allowing difficult things and God removing difficult things according to his plan and not Paul's. One illustration of this is found in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is kind of reflecting on his life And he's talking about this thing. We don't know what it was. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. There was something in Paul's life that was causing him suffering and pain relentlessly. Some people believe that it was his eyesight. Some people believe that it was another person that was creating, not that any of us have ever experienced another person causing affliction and um, difficulty in our life. But I'm just saying Paul seemed to have that challenge from time to time. Uh, So maybe you can relate to that. Uh, But whatever it is, Paul spent a great deal of time crying out to the Lord, saying, take this away, take it away, take it away. Maybe you can relate to that. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, what Paul's saying is God had allowed a lot of really cool stuff to happen in my life that a lot of people didn't get to experience. He said, a thorn was given me in the flesh. That's a mature statement to say right there. God gave me this. A lot of people, if they were to look at the affliction in their life and say, God gave me this, a lot of people would say, well, that is an awful, inhumane, terrible God that would give me something like this. Paul doesn't see it that way. He said, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. See what he said there? It's not about me. It's about him. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, 
It's when we suffer in the weaknesses that our life becomes a laboratory for God to prove Himself strong. It's just a lot of us don't want to live in the lab. And this blind man is an example of that. Jesus said this man's life, you know, it's not about his sin. It's about God proving Himself and who He is. The whole Gospel of John is about signs of Christ proving Himself. This is another sign. He takes this man, he gives him his sight, and what happens after is the real telling of the story, in my opinion. So, Elizabeth Elliot, some of you know her, Elizabeth Elliot, her husband Jim Elliot, was a missionary uh, who was killed as he was trying to take the gospel to the Aka Indians uh, in Central South America. Uh, they were they were taking the gospel. They landed their plane on a beach there in the uh, in the forest, and by the riverside there, they were ready to love on these native Indians who had a history for being violent. So the Indians started to come out, and they were excited. This was going to be their first encounter. And there on that beach, by that plane that they flew in on, they were all slaughtered. All those missionaries were slaughtered. And that left Elizabeth as a young wife and mother. And you can imagine what her perspective could have been on life after such an incident. But yet, this is what she says. Just one quick quote that stuck out at me this week. She said, of one thing I am perfectly sure, God's story never ends in ashes. I don't know, you may feel like you're standing in ashes. You may feel like you are heaping ashes on your head every single day in what's going on in your heart and in your life. But what she said here is evidenced by Christ even in our illustration today in the Scriptures. God's story in your life means that your life will never end in ashes. That's a great word of assurance. So here's some of the ways... Christ's work in the Scriptures, I feel, points towards His ministry. The healings that He did. The healings, first of all, they, they fulfilled His, his um, Messianic prophecy. In the Old Testament, we knew that there would be works that Christ would do that would prove that Christ was the Messiah. Um, and this blind man is an illustration of that. We see it in Isaiah 42. Verses 6 and 7, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. That is what Jesus Christ did in this man's life. And then in Matthew 8, We're told that that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. The idea here is this. In the Old Testament, the word points towards a healing Messiah. So when Jesus comes, it's only natural that he as Messiah would do these things. This man's life, this man was born blind. Why? So that Jesus could be evidenced as the Messiah. So that people might believe on Him and be saved. 
The, the works that Jesus did and the healings, they, they also authenticated his messianic ministry. It wasn't just proving the, the prophecy, but now it was authentic, authenticating who he really is. We see in John 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that many may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Why did Jesus do these healings? Not just simply so that He could be proven as the Messiah, but that His role as Messiah was enough. Jesus also did these things in people's lives. This is what I'm getting at. The whole point of me telling you this is so that you realize it's so many things God does in your life, it's not about you. It's about Him proving Himself. Jesus did all these things, these healings and miracles for another reason. He did it to glorify God. He did it to glorify His Heavenly Father as we see in John 11. So this is um, one of my favorite miracles actually, is the raising of Lazarus. And um, Lazarus is sick. And it says in verse 3, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now we're going to get to Lazarus in, in a few weeks, but you know what is very interesting about that statement is, Jesus said, Oh, it's not going to end in death. It's so that God could be glorified. But Lazarus died. Didn't he? I mean, he did die. So he was dead for four days. He was dead for so long that it, it stank horribly. His body reeked he was dead that long. And yet Jesus said it won't end in death. Jesus did this and allowed Lazarus to die for four days. Why? To glorify God. To prove who he was. It was his sisters wept. Jesus himself wept over Lazarus. The community was heartbroken. And yet Jesus allowed it. Why? So that he could raise him from the dead. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, Jesus did these things like giving this man his sight to demonstrate his own deity. The world needed to know that Jesus was not just a prophet, that he wasn't just a miracle worker, that he wasn't just a good teacher, as the world would have you believe today. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. Jesus wasn't just a good guy. Jesus wasn't just a champion for social justice. Jesus didn't just come into the world to feed the hungry and care for the sick. Jesus came into the world to show that He is God so that He might deliver an entire sinful world unto Himself. In Mark chapter 2, the Gospel writer quotes Jesus in this way. Jesus is getting ready to heal a paralytic and the religious people don't like that either. It says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And later on in that story, you can read when they began to question him. I mean, they were questioning him on this. You know, who do you think you are? Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus says, basically, yeah, that's true. So not only is this man forgiven, but just so you know that I am God and have the authority to forgive sins, hey, you, pick up, you who've been paralyzed forever, pick up your mat and walk home. I love it. I love the aspect of Jesus where he just kind of like throws it out there in people's faces and says, deal with this. And he's saying, deal with my very deity. Think about the types of diseases Jesus healed. He didn't heal all diseases that we know of. He healed specific types of things. Outward kind of things. Outward organic illnesses. Physical disabilities, people who were born lame, crippled, blind since birth. People that had a reputation for being blind. The whole community knew that they did just, this wasn't like a faith healer service where a bunch of strangers come in the back of the tent, they walk into the front, they say, I can't see. A guy smacks them upside the head and says, now you see. They fall over, everybody cheers, and now they say, I can see. These are people that the whole community knew their infirmity. They knew that they were blind. It was something that was provable. Jesus healed people who had... Um, very evidential illnesses to everybody. And this is, this is important to get this. Why would he do this? Well, he didn't, he didn't heal, you don't read of Jesus healing people with, like, inconspicuous stuff. You know, Jesus healed people with headaches. Jesus healed people with high blood pressure. Or Jesus healed people who had heart palpitations or sore throats. Jesus healed people with infirmities that would evidence to everybody around them that I am God. This man has not walked a day in his life. Get up, walk. And he does. And everybody had to acknowledge what had just happened. Think about the way Jesus healed this particular blind man. This is so cool. He took the dirt of the earth and he spit in it. Out of his mouth, he spit into it. And he put it on the man's eyes. And as I read that, think of a different aspect of God. I think of the garden. God taking the dirt of the earth, forming it into life, breathing life into it, and making a man. There's a parallel here that's significant. This Jesus is the Creator God who takes the dirt of the earth and does whatever He wants with it. And out of His mouth comes life and healing. And out of who Jesus is flows forgiveness and hope and a future. Nobody would think of mud on this man's eyes as something that is um, beautiful. Yet this is exactly what it is to Jesus. The same Jesus who 
uh, in the creation account, created life out of dirt, now creates sight for this man out of that same dirt. And he tells the man, I want you to do this specific thing. You've been... You've got this mud on your eyes, now you need to wash. And I want you to just not go, don't just you know, go to the closest well, don't take a, a pitcher of water and rinse the mud off. I want you to go to this pool, it's called Siloam, it means scent. The pool was called um, Siloam because uh, the idea that um, during the Feast of Booths, they would go and they would fill that pitcher of water. Remember, we talked about that. And they would go to the temple and they would pour it. And seven times they went and they filled the pitcher of water. Because God, it was remembering that God sent his children out of Egypt. God was their sender. God was their deliverer out of Egypt. So when Hezekiah uh, created this tunnel of water into Jerusalem. King Hezekiah, he created this pool and they named it Siloam where they would remember this water. And Jesus tells this man, I want you to go to the water called Scent. And here's the deal. This is significant. Jesus doesn't just do these things for random reasons. The only way you ever really see and experience healing in your life is when it's in the name of the one who was sent on your behalf. It is the sender God, the Messiah, who has come into this man's life to deliver him. Not just give him sight. Jesus, Jesus didn't come to heal this guy and give him sight. He came to heal him totally physically and spiritually. So the mud kind of parallels our physical birth in God, but the washing in the pool called scent parallels our spiritual rebirth in Christ. I just want to, this morning, stop here and say this. We all have needs in this room. We all have needs in this room. Very real needs. Physical needs. Needs that revolve around illness. Needs that revolve around physical brokenness. And Jesus stands and He waits patiently, calling out to each one of us, saying, I have come. I was sent by the living God as God in flesh in order to deliver you from your affliction." You are blind and you are imprisoned. And that which you suffer through today is nothing compared to that which eternal life will look like without me. You will be suffering for eternity without me. I came as the one sent by God to die on your behalf so that the stuff that you carry today, you no longer have to carry. The things that afflict you today do not need to afflict you for eternity. The things that blind you today no longer need to dictate what you see. This is a beautiful thing. The person who comes to God on His terms and says, yes, I fall down before you, Jesus. I accept the sacrifice on the cross that you made for me. The love that you poured out for me. I believe that you were sent for me. The person who comes to that place in their life, Jesus gives them a new vision. The Bible, this is 
this is something radically different than what I thought it was or what I saw before I came to Christ. I grew up reading these things until I was like 12 or 13 years old and had no idea what God was saying to me. And then when I came to Christ, He gave me a heart and a vision for what this really says. His Spirit came into me and gave me sight to see into the deep things of God and understand Him better. And that can be you this morning. You just come to God and you say, this isn't a religious act. This isn't some sort of cult practice. Jesus has been doing this for 2,000 years in every tent and church and coffee shop and workplace environment known to man. Jesus has been calling men and women to Himself saying, come and experience what real healing looks like. Come to Me and I promise you that you will live forever. Your sin, the things that cause affliction in this world today, will not follow you into eternity. You will live forever with me. And I'm going to invite you to make that decision when this message is over. Let's go to the next part of our story. Bear with me. This is a longer, a little longer uh, clip here, but it, I think it begins to tie together the purpose behind this whole healing. In verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Stop right there. That's their beef. That's their beef. The law said you can't make mud on the Sabbath. You can't make mud. And you can't heal people unless it's a life and death situation. The ridiculousness of even saying that is overwhelming, but you can't make mud on the Sabbath. Verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, and he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him. Hang on a second before I go on. The man's answer, they asked him, who is this guy who gave his sight? It was Jesus. Okay, well, but yeah, who is he? Well, he's a prophet. Has the man arrived at eternal life yet? No. Which tells me Jesus isn't done with him. There's more to this miraculous healing than simply giving this guy his sight back. Which is why we're going to see Jesus again in a second. Anyway, uh, verse 18, the Jews did not believe him that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents didn't want to get in trouble, so they decided to just kind of um, excuse themselves from this whole entire conversation. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. 
So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And, he, and by this time, he's got to be getting frustrated. I mean, he's answering these things multiple times. It's ridiculous. It's like watching a congressional hearing on TV. He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Their message to this man is the exact opposite of Jesus' message to this man. Jesus' message to this man is, you are in the situation you're in so that God might receive glory. Their message to him was, you're in the situation you're in because you're a sinner, unlike us who are righteous. Uh, And they would have to deal with the consequences of their hard-heartedness that they express towards Christ. The second aspect to remember this morning is that our vision will be questioned by those still blind. Our vision that you receive in Christ is always going to be questioned by those who are still blind. We receive sight. We see Jesus for who He is. We experience the work in our lives And now we become keenly aware of a world full of doubters and rejectors and haters on Christ himself. They look like this. They look like your sister or your brother. They look like your mother. They look like that guy at work. They look like that crazy dude that's always on Facebook. They look like the people that just overwhelm you with animosity towards God and consider you some sort of weak-minded individual looking for a religious crutch to get through life. And they'll call you all sorts of names and they'll try and uh, cast doubt and fear into your own life and they'll, they'll even threaten you at times. This is what they'll do. They'll be the kind of pre- people that will preach evidence and signs, and then they'll ignore it when it actually comes. That was the Pharisees. They preached about signs. They talked about evidences. They loved to preach about the work of God, and yet when it was right there in front of them, they rejected it. This guy articulates it in multiple ways. He says, I'm not blind anymore. How blind can you be to see that I'm not blind anymore? For those of us truly lifted out of death and into spiritual blindness, we get our sight, we see, and that's enough. We we look at our lives and we look at the atrocities that have occurred and the heartaches that we've experienced, and then we look to Jesus. We look at our 
we look at the travesty that maybe was, or the heartache that was a, a marriage at one point in time, or that you're going through in your marriage and you say, yeah, that's the reality of my marriage. But in Christ, there's always a, a, a but. You can look at that travesty and you can say, yeah, this is the reality, but Jesus. You can look at... Um, You can look at your life and and say, my past should cripple me. I should have no hope at all because of the things I've done. But Jesus. Say, my existence, I, I shouldn't even be here. The things that I've dabbled in, the stuff I've done, I shouldn't even be alive. But Jesus. You say, my... My value as a human being used to be found in what other people thought about me to the point where I sold myself to others through sex. I sold myself through um, codependent relationships. But now, Jesus. Because Jesus enters into our life and all of a sudden we see a value and a worth that transcends anything that we've done and it transcends anything that we feel that we've become. He literally takes His identity and places it upon us. That's how beautiful He is. So these people preach evidence and signs, and then when they see it in our lives, when they see that we've overcome divorce, when they see that we've overcome learning disabilities, when they see that we've overcome uh, bad relationships, when they see that we've overcome horrible decisions in our past, when they see that we've overcome a legal rap sheet, the length of a full sheet of paper, when they see that, they still deny the work of God in our lives. These are the people that will preach tolerance and they'll preach love and yet they'll choose to reject both through name-calling and lies. These Pharisees, they called Jesus a sinner. Why? Because He made mud and He healed people on the Sabbath because He loved them that much. They used their positions and their pulpit to intimidate and threaten. It's a common theme we see in the world today. The people who scream the loudest about tolerance and love are the people who hate God and hate what He's about the most. And we're left somewhere in the middle to try and reconcile. They'll preach a platform of truth. We are disciples of Moses. And yet they reject the truth when it's presented right in front of them. This encounter with the Pharisees is just a brief microcosm of Israel and its relationship with God, on and on and on. A very difficult passage to understand. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8. Prophet Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, and it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God called Isaiah to be a prophet. And what was the message that Isaiah was given from God? I want you to go into Israel and I want you to preach their hard-heartedness back at them. I want you to preach that they are blind. I want you to preach to them that they are dull to the things of God. This was Israel's problem. We even see it in my quiet time going through the book of Exodus right now, and you see it in the wilderness over and over again. Oh, Moses, why would you bring us here? Were the graves not enough in Egypt that we would die there? You had to bring us into the desert that we might die here. They always doubted God. They were always blind to the workings of God. They were always keeping Him at a distance and rejecting His works and the evidences right in front of them. So it should be no surprise to Jesus that He stands here in Israel preaching the truth of Himself, and yet they would still reject. Reject, reject. May it not be the same with us. Sometimes in our lives, folks, nothing including the Bible, our personal stories, and the miracles of God Himself are going to be good enough for other people. It's just not going to happen. People's hearts are hard, and that's the way it is. But we don't stop trying to love them and trying to share with them. Lastly, last part of our story, the glorious part here in John chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, meaning that guy, he, he, what, he, he's healed by Jesus, he receives his sight, and what does he get for that? Kicked out of the synagogue. synagogue. Hey, uh, I'm glad you're seeing now, but by the way, you're no longer part of the religious club. So, uh, they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? This is where Jesus is wrapping it all together. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered him, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You, I, you do understand, like, this man has no idea who he's talking to. He's never seen him. When Jesus sent him away, he was still blind, remember? He sent him away. Here, put this mud on your eyes. I know you can't see nothing. I want you to go to the other side of Jerusalem and go for a swim in that pool. And when you're clean then you'll be healed. So he encounters this guy who's saying, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? I don't know. Who is he? I believe in him. Who is he? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. When did he see him? Ah, he saw him when Christ put that mud on his eyes. By faith. By faith, he went to that pool at Siloam in the words of Jesus. He by faith in the words of Christ, who he could not even see yet, he went to the pool at Siloam and received his healing. He followed the voice of a man that he had not seen, and he went and he was healed. So now he comes to the man, and Jesus says, he doesn't say, the first thing he says is not, you're looking at him, the first thing he says is, you have seen him, past tense. Oh, you know him. And then he says to him, and it is He who is speaking to you. And He said, Lord, I believe. And I love this. And He worshipped Him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, and those who do not see may see, and those who see 
may become blind. That's the point of the whole miracle right there. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. I am God incarnate. I have come into the world that those who need to see may see and those who think they see may be blinded. Jesus came into the world to heal this man of his spiritual blindness. To heal the world of its spiritual blindness. Last point this morning. Our vision will lead us to a point or a place of complete allegiance. Our vision will lead us to a place of complete allegiance. Consider Jesus when He revisits this man. And this is no longer simply about healing, but this is about lordship. When the Christ opens a person's life and heart and eyes to Him, it's only the beginning. The bigger question is, what will you do with it? When Christ has healed you, Christ has forgiven you. Hang tight with me here this morning. Has Christ forgiven you and what are you doing with it? This is the big takeaway for those of us who are Christians in the room. When the Christ opens a person's life and heart and eyes to Him, this is only the beginning. John the Baptist's words as a result of such allegiance as we're told by His own new sight. I love it. In John 1.34, John the Baptist said this, And I have seen and have borne witness to this, that this is the Son of of God, And so should it be our testimony too in our lives. I've seen, I've borne witness to this Christ. He is the Son of God. We should tell everybody that message. What has Jesus done in your life? We tell people Christ has done this and He's forgiven me and He is the Son of God. It's not good enough for people to say Jesus is a good teacher, Jesus was a nice guy, Jesus did some you know, really important things. Jesus feeds the hungry. The more important thing to come out of a person's mouth in life is to confess that Jesus is Lord, is the Son of God. But what does this allegiance look like? Worship. The man says, who is he? Tell me who he is that I may believe in him. Oh, you have seen him, and the one you're looking at now is him. And it says the man worshipped him. Worshipped Him. We're told once Jesus' identity is revealed, He worshipped Him. And worship isn't about where you go on Sunday or a particular action that you engage in. It's about the position of your heart. That's what worship is. You can worship while you discipline your children. You can worship while you go to work. You can worship while you wait for your car to be repaired at the mechanic. You can worship in any fashion because it's about the position of your heart, not about the place or the thing that you do. The common word for worship in the New Testament some 60 times is the Greek word proskuneo. And it's this beautiful image of kind of like bowing down and kissing the hand. It was often used in reference to a dog and his master. The dog would come and would would lap, lick at the side, at the hand of his master. So when this man, he... He bows down and he worships proskuneo. He he recognizes him as master. And he gives him the best affection that he knows how at that moment. Puts him in the See, when a dog comes and licks its master's hand as gross as that may sound to some of us, it's the most wonderful thing that a the dog could do for you. Cuz some things are going on there. 
First of all, it's the dog recognizing his position to you. You're the most important thing to him. At that moment, too, the dog receives assurance from the master's presence. The dog also shares affection at that point in time with his master. And the dog is modeling commitment to the master there as well, as it should be for us in in worship. In the epistles, a slightly different word for worship is used by Peter and Paul, like in Romans 12.1, very popular passage. Paul said, I appeal to you, church, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship, spiritual worship. The word here is latria. It means to serve. So the position of your heart and worship in a New Testament way looks like loving your master and willingness to serve him in any way that he desires. That's where this man had come to in his life. I I love that in this miraculous healing, Jesus wasn't simply satisfied with the guy getting his eyesight back. Jesus isn't just simply satisfied with you having a need met. Because Jesus isn't Santa Claus. The world thinks of him that way. Jesus does not exist to make us happy. Jesus does not exist to give us stuff. Jesus exists to give us life and to bring us to a place of worshiping Him. We exist, our lives exist to bring glory to God. And if anything about your life doesn't fit in that narrative, then you're outside the will of God. Your life exists to bring glory to God. Jesus wants heart devotion, not a tip of the hat, not a wink. Jesus wants all of you or none of you. There's no middle ground, no fence riding. So where do you stand with him? If you're a believer in the room, if you've already made that commitment to him or you've trusted in him as Lord and Savior, where is your life at? The good times and the bad times, do they belong to Him? Do you believe that God exists in your life to such a substantial level where He can take any situation that you're in and bring glory to Himself? And are you ready to see Him do that? And if you're in the room today and this idea of Christ as Savior, as Lord of your life, has been foreign, today is a day of good news. The Bible says that today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that God would love to speak to your heart and say this, the very simple truth. Sinners, which is all of us, have no business inheriting the kingdom of God. But because Jesus Christ loved us, He loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. He sent Christ into the world, and instead of you paying for the penalty of your sins, Jesus went to the cross and He took the penalty for your sin and my sin. At that moment, you are guaranteed eternal life. If you believe in that, you are given eternal life by faith.
If you've not done that, that's the most important decision of your life. And you can make that today. And that's going to be my closing prayer. Let's go to the Lord together.